0: Today's message today is kind of one of those to where if I put down everything that I was wanting you to get, you, you could never even put your head up. Um, and I don't want you to think, because there's not a lot of little blankies to fill in, that this is not important because really we're coming to a, a climax on this whole thing that we've been studying from Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, the middle of the verse where it talks about this group of people called the 144,000. What it says is characteristic of them is they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And for you folks who haven't been here, we've been taking that little phrase and for an ungodly number of weeks, we've been trying to just let God show us what that really means in this period of time. Now, the 144,000 are a group of people that will carry out God's plan on the earth Once we're out of here, once we've been raptured during the tribulation period, we are right now in the Laodicean church period. For you folks who are guests, that's taken from Revelation chapter 3, where God tells us that there's seven periods of church history that will culminate with the rapture of the church. We are living in the seventh and final one of those, a period called the Laodicean church period, which is a very bleak picture that God draws of us. And since this characteristic of the 144,000, that they know how to follow. Since that is so uncharacteristic of us, that's why we've we've taken weeks, months, to just try to get through these thick layout of seeing minds and these blind layout of seeing eyes, what it really means to to follow. And we talked about the fact that Jesus said that if you're gonna follow him, there's two prerequisites. You've got to deny yourself, and secondly. You've got to take up your cross, and this is where we've been for about the last month. I've kind of lost track, and it really doesn't matter, but we've tried to understand biblically what does it mean to actually take up our cross and, as Paul said, be crucified with Christ and know the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. What does it mean to really die to ourselves and what does it really mean to experience the power of the resurrection, the abundant life that Jesus talked about? And, and we, we've gone through all kinds of things. We, we don't have time to do a long review today. But what we've been looking at for the last several weeks now is a Laodicean prescription for what it's really going to take for us to start living the life that Jesus died to give us. Now we all claim, most of us in this room today, 99% of us claim, that we have come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have experienced his death, burial, and resurrection, and it has caused us to be raised to newness of life. But the fact of the matter is, most of us would have to agree that we really have never tapped into the fullness of all that God intended the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to mean for us. And so we've talked about, as Laodiceans, what is it going to take for us to come to the place that we really do understand and we really have experienced the abundant life that Jesus talked about? And we talked about, first of all, the fact that if we're going to do this, we've got to, first of all, get honest with God. We've got to get honest with God about our real condition before Him. One of the things that we find in, the, in Revelation chapter 3 about Laodiceans is that what He says is that we're lukewarm. We remain lukewarm because we think that we've got the right balance between hot and cold, and Jesus says you don't have a good balance there. I wish you were one way or the other, and because you are the way you are, it makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. And and, and the reason that we remain Wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, as Jesus said. The reason we remain there is because we think that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And and what God is trying to show us here is that we've got to buy gold so that we can really be rich. And what we saw from Isaiah chapter 55 is that to come into God's treasure house and buy treasure, the way that you do that is not with money. The way that you do that is with honesty coming before God and saying, God, I'm in desperate need of you. I have nothing whatsoever to offer. And God says, you know what? That's all the price you need right there. I'll, I'll honor that. I'll, I'll, man, I'll step up to the plate when you'll just come and you'll get honest about your condition. So we've talked about getting honest with God and thirsting for that which is, is not ours. And then secondly, we talked about this thing of... Humbling ourselves before God, you must humble yourself before God, and if you would turn to Philippians chapter two and verse eight, this is where we really saw this this principle in Philippians chapter two and verse eight. what our Lord does here is He reveals to us what it was that led to his death on the cross, and, and we, we saw that That our Lord's invitation to follow him was to follow him down the path that he opened for us through cross-bearing and and crucifixion and death. And Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 gave us the first thing that led the Lord Jesus Christ down that path. It was the simple fact that, look at it in verse 8, he humbled himself. And so listen, if, if we are going to know the death of the cross... So that we can understand and experience the power of the resurrection the same thing that was found in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have to be found in us and we too must humble ourselves before God and for three solid weeks now we've been talking about what it actually means to humble yourself before God And, and I'm not going to I'm going to spare some of you folks that have got it all together I'm going to spare you the the review about what it really means to humble yourself before God, but and and this is going to be some tough stuff right right here for the next couple of couple of minutes. But I feel like there's some things that we need to talk about as a church. You know, as we've been going through this, there are some of you folks that are looking ahead in Revelation chapter 14 and saying, "Yeah, I wish we'd just get on with." with life here I wish we'd really get on with with the study uh, of this thing because some of you folks you got it don't you You, you've arrived you you are humble and the 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 sad fact is that right now there is some of you that are thinking i'm talking to everybody else and, and and now listen let's just for for a second let's all just let's just Get the attention up here and let's just say, okay, I'm not going to apply the things I'm about to hear to anybody other than me. And, okay, so now all you folks that already got all this stuff down about humility and about dying on the the cross, okay, make sure now that that you are listening to to this thing. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago as Laodiceans? We've got this problem. Because we think we know something, we think we have it. And that is not the case at all. Listen, folks, humility is being brought to nothingness. And some of you think that you're humble. Because in your mind, you know that in comparison to God, which you know very well because you've got all the doctrines all down. You know all the stuff about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You know all about what was going on in eternity past. You got all that stuff down. And because you got all that stuff down, oh, you've got such a high view of God. And so you think you're humble because you've got this high view of God. But the fact is that some of us still think that we are something compared to everybody else. And, and the reason that some of us think that we are better than everybody else is because of what we know. And I, I want to just tell you, folks, I, uh, some of the most sarcastic, egotistical, unloving, judgmental statements that are made by the people in this church are made by the people whose heads are filled with more knowledge than everybody else. The people that know so much, and, and I don't know if, we, if we've forgotten verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. Would you just listen to it? If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing as he ought to know. Okay, now, wait, 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 I'm I'm telling you, don't go to somebody else and don't start applying this to somebody else. Okay, everybody that knows so much around here, all you folks that have been through discipleship too, all you folks who are in shepherd school especially, would you please listen? As soon as you start thinking, you know something, God says, you don't know diddly squat about anything. Hello? Hello? Now, 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 y'all, listen, I, I, you know the way, you know I love this church, and you know that I, I love you, but, but I, I'm just telling you, sometimes I, I, I'll tell you where I feel like we are. Not, not, not this broad sweeping stroke, I'm just telling you, I, I, I feel like God's trying to shake us because where I fear that we're going is that we're coming in here Sunday morning Sunday night we're learning all of this stuff about the Bible and about God and 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 all these things and rather than all of this stuff becoming like James chapter one talks about rather than it being a mirror for us to hold up and look at and compare ourselves to the standard of the Word of God to be quite honest with you I'm afraid that where we're moving with all of this is that rather than it becoming a mirror, it becomes a picture frame that we walk out, and we come out uh, of church with these various picture frames of various sizes and shapes uh, uh, on our arm, and we walk around in this church and, and through life holding picture frames up in front of people and saying, yep, you know what? It's exactly what Pastor Mark was talking about right there. Look at that. Stereotypical right there. And we've gotten so wise, haven't we? We've gotten so discerning about people through all of these things that God's been trying to teach us about us. But it's moving us into an arena to where we become judgmental of people and and we run people down. and, And as Timothy talked about in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4, we make evil surmisings of people I man we've become the judge and the jury because of all of these things that that we've learned uh, folks do, do you know what do you know what knowledge is for do you know why god tells us to get knowledge in, in colossians chapter 3 he, he tells us it's so that we can Renew our minds. Our minds are renewed in knowledge. And when our mind is renewed, you know what? We start thinking like Christ. And when you begin to think like Christ, you think in terms of loving your brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse verse 1. It says, knowledge puffeth up, but love builds up. Charity edifieth. And, and, and pl- listen, everybody in the church, I don't care where you are, please l- listen to this. Some of us are getting so wise in our own conceits that we really think that we are some kind of spiritual thing because we have this ability to pick out people's flaws and immediately judge exactly why they act this way, and, and we walk around proud of our ability to discern people. And and the whole message of this book is, we're learning this stuff so that we can apply it to our lives so that we can become like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the knowledge is really doing what it's supposed to be doing, then what it's going to cause you to do is love your brother, which is going to mean that we're going to put on bowels of mercies and kindness And humbleness of mind, and meekness, and long-suffering, and forbearance, and forgiveness, and above all of these things, charity, which is the bond of perfectness. If we really have the knowledge and we see somebody that isn't living the way that they're supposed to be living, it doesn't, we're not going to judge them. We're not going to go around running them down. If you love them, you're going to try to get next to them and try to love them out of that trash that they're in. Try to build them up. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Not by your knowledge of the deep things of the word of God. Not by the ability that you have to run everybody else down because you can so quickly discern their flaws. No, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. And yet, folks, I'm just telling you, some of us have gotten to the place around here that we've put more stock in being knowledgeable than we have in being loving. The characteristic of a true believer, the thing that people can't get over, is not your ability to bust the word. It's your ability to love people the way that Jesus loved people. And you know what, I had to just step back in light of all that we've been through as a church in the last months, and I've just had to ask myself real honestly, would the testimony of this church be, my, how they know the Word of God? Or, like the early church, their testimony was, my, how they love one another. I'm asking you. I hate to to admit it, I'm afraid we. I'm afraid we missed it, and and yet some of us are real anxious to get off this this humility thing because goodness gracious, and we, we've learned all this crap before. Been there, done that. Can I go? First Timothy for just a sec. Why don't you go over there? First Timothy chapter one. Would you look at verse 5? Now, the end of the commandment. Here it is. Now, the end of the commandment is charity. Hello. You want the bottom line? Here it is. Have brotherly love one for another. End of the commandment. End of story. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned, from which some, okay, now don't apply it to everybody else in the room. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside. What have they turned aside from? What have they swerved away from? From charity. From the end of the commandment. And some of you have swerved and turned aside unto vain jangling, empty talk. And we can talk about everybody. desiring to be teachers of the law that's us ain't it we're moving toward ministry but check it out understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm you know what God says all all you folks that think you got it all together but you've swerved away from the the end of the commandment just simple basic love of your brother he says you're 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 preparing yourself to teach all this stuff, and you don't even have a clue as to what you're even talking about, because if you knew what you're talking about, it would cause you to love people rather than size them up. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, and verse 12, it says... Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? Uh, I guess we're going to turn there. I really wasn't intending you to. Uh, Proverbs twenty-six, twelve. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? Oh, oh no! Now, and the thing that I'm fearing is that at the very time that I'm trying to hammer this point that we're we're all thinking about, oh, I hope they're listening. And I'm, I'm telling you, if that's the, the attitude that you have, you, you need to just rewind the tape here and get right back to the beginning. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? Look at the rest of it. There is more hope of a fool than of him. God's trying to get us to see that when you think you got it all together and you're so able to view everybody else's problems, he says, you know what, you're worse off than the guy that you're, you're running down. There's more hope of a fool than of him. Don't, don't turn there, just, just listen to this one, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, for if any man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And if you think you're something, I would just remind you that the greatest Christian who ever lived on this planet, Paul, said, I am the least, I am less than the least, I am the chief of sinners, I am nothing. And he says, if you think that you're something when you're nothing, and and I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how spiritual you are, or what you told yourself, they ain't none of us. Nothing. And he says, when you think you're something, you deceived yourself. And you better just go back and you better catch the end of the commandment. How many of y'all how many of y'all saw First Kid? Okay. It's a really funny movie. It's all about the president's kid, and he's a little obnoxious, smart-aleck little kid, and he's got the bodyguard that's, uh, what, what's, it's Sims, but what, Sinbad is, is the bodyguard, and so he, he goes into this, 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 kid's, you know, uh, the, the yuppity-yupp school, you know, where everybody's wearing the blazers and the little emblems and all that kind of a deal, and, and he's got this little chip on his shoulder, you know, because he's the president's kid and everything, and so one of the kids comes up to him at lunchtime and says to him, so what's your deal, man? You think you're better than everybody else? The president's kid looks at him and says, "Not everybody." And I'm afraid that's where that's where we are. Well, we are humble before God, but we're not nothing. I think I'm better than those people over there. Well, I'm not better than everybody. Just some folks. And so, and you know what, I I just, I I had this on my heart this morning. And for you folks who are guests and think we're done, we're a long way from being done. I know this sounds like the end of the message, uh, like the end of the commandment, but we're a long way out from that. But I'm just telling you, I, I I I don't want the people that need this the most to miss it because you think you got it. And I'm just telling you, everybody in this church, from the fathead guy standing up here running his mouth every week to the person in the last row of the balcony, every single one of us needs to get honest with God about our condition and we need to humble ourselves before Him to the place of nothingness. Nothingness. And then this morning we come to the third and final thing that's going to have to be in place if we're ever really going to know the power of his resurrection in our lives that that comes from taking up our cross and dying to self on that cross, and that is, number three, we must be obedient to God. We've got to get honest with God. We've got to humble ourselves before God, and we must be obedient to God. And by that I mean obedient unto death. And not necessarily physical death, but most certainly death to self. And I I don't want to get too cutesy, but you you may want to just log in your mind when it comes to this thing of obedience, that the three middle letters of the word obedience spell what? Die. And and listen, that, that can serve as a great reminder for you that at the heart of true biblical obedience is a death. You've got to die, die to self. And again, that's the whole purpose of the cross. That's the thing that brought us into this whole discussion, taking up our cross. And there comes a place to where we learn to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Look at verse 8 of Philippians 2 again. We've gone several places since then. Go back to Philippians 2 and verse 8. As it describes here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it describes the the path to our Lord's death on the cross and ultimate resurrection, of course. Verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man. And and look back at verse 6. It's already clearly established the fact in this passage that he was and has always been God. And yet, verse 7, he made himself. Here he is, God! Jesus now. He's always been eternal God, and yet he made himself, verse 7, of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now, verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man. Listen, taking on a human body, just like all of you and I have. See, that's why we're using this as our point of reference. He became the same stuff that we're made of, and he died on the cross. What was it that led to all of that? Look, he humbled himself. And in humbling himself, now watch it, flowing out of that humility, look at the rest of the verse. He, what's the next word? And became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Now watch it. Without his boundless humility, he would have never been, what? obedient. And had he never been obedient, he would have never died on the cross. And you do understand that if he never died on the cross, as wonderful as his life was, as sinless as his life was, as powerful as his life was, without his death on the cross, every single one of us would split hell wide open because it wasn't his sinless life that saved us. It was His atoning death. The fact that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that as the Lamb of God shedding His holy, precious blood on the cross, we might be able to have the forgiveness of sins and might have imparted unto us His life as His Spirit moves into our dead spirits so that we might be able to have the relationship with God that we were created to have. And and look at what verse 8 says. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And as I've been just pondering this and reading this, as I was telling you the other day, every single day of my life for months, I come to this same passage and I just read it and read it and read it. And I'm just jolted here. He became obedient. God in human flesh humbled himself. And, and we talked about all of that. And now he became obedient. What's up with that? And let's go to Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus in his last, the last hours of his life, he's made his way into the garden of Gethsemane. Listen now. The reason he's here is to work through this thing of becoming obedient unto the death of the cross and, and to really have What's going on here in perspective, you've got to remember, folks, that all of human history began in the book of Genesis in a, in a what? In a garden. And it was that garden where God walked and talked in perfect, harmonious fellowship with his creation. And, and it was that garden where man had the opportunity to eat from the tree of life and yet chose instead in rebellion against God to eat from a different tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and because of it he was separated from God and he was banished from that garden. And yet when you come to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it ends once again in a garden where once again man is given the opportunity to eat from a tree. The tree of life. But you see, something you got to understand is that we could have never gone from that garden where the Bible begins to this garden over here where the Bible ends without this garden that's tucked right here in the middle of your Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ walks into in Matthew chapter 26 because this garden is what led to our Lord Jesus Christ becoming obedient unto the death of the cross and listen through what he would do on that cross. That cross would become a tree of life to every single person who would believe. But this garden where we find ourselves in Matthew 26 and verse 36 is a place of struggle. A place of struggle. It's the struggle between my will and what? And thy will. And you see, most believers understand that. That that was the the struggle that our Lord faced in, in this garden. But what most believers don't understand is that any way you slice it, listen to it, whether we want to or not, whether we recognize it or not, do you understand, folks, that every single one of us finds ourselves in this garden every single day of our lives? We find ourselves in this same exact struggle between my will and thy will. And again, because our Lord was victorious and And because he chose to become obedient in this garden, because of that, you and I now have eternal life pulsing through our veins and we have the opportunity of coming into this garden because, listen, before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't even have the ability to choose to do his will. Because of what he did in this garden, we're able to come. But understand, we all come. And we all come to this place of, of a decision between my will and thy will. Watch how this thing comes down here in verse 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, and saith unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go yon go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, <clears throat> My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry you here and watch with me. And you can just imagine the time that he spent with these guys, and now he's pulled these three guys aside and he says, Listen, I've never been through anything like this in my life. I'm so sorrowful right now. I feel like I'm literally going to die. And I want to ask you fellows to do something for me. This is the most important thing I've ever asked you. Oh, I've asked you to to heal sick people and I've asked you to raise the dead and uh, I've asked you to have a part in teaching and I've I've asked you to do a lot of things but never have I asked you to do anything more important than what I'm asking you to do. Would you pray with me? I'm going to go over here and I'm going to pray but listen, while I'm over there I'm needing you right now. I'm needing you to pray for me. Verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he gets up off of his, his face, and he comes unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? I'm telling you, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times here, our Lord prays that this cup would pass, and I think most of you understand that the, the struggle or the cup that our Lord faced between His will and the will of the Father wasn't His unwillingness or, or fear to die on, on the cross. It, it wasn't that he was, he was wondering whether or not He had enough love in His heart to fulfill the, the, the plan. It, it wasn't that. You, you Most of you know this. It, it was that He so understood that for the first time in his eternal existence, he was going to have to be separated from the Father because the Father would be forced to turn his back on him. Because, and we talked about this just a little bit earlier because on that cross, he would not only bear the sins of every human being that would ever live, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he would, what, become sin for us. And three times here as we've seen he prays, "Father, is there any other way to redeem men to yourself without me being separated from you? Oh Lord, if if there could be, that would be my will, Father, and yet if there is no other way, not my will, but but thy will be done." And obviously, you know that out of this garden of struggle that we see here that our Lord was in, He became, as Philippians 2.8 says, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And now listen, for all of us, for all of us who are, who are ever going to experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about, that, that comes from experiencing the power of his resurrection, do you understand that that's going to come and it's going to be a part of our life because we too are daily going to enter into this garden and choose to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I I, I believe for every person who, who truly... Desires to be dead indeed unto sin and, and alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I believe that what God does is He orchestrates the events and circumstances of our lives to put us in this garden here in Matthew 26 where we face the struggle of whether or not we will choose to humble ourselves before Him and be obedient to Him even unto death or choose our own way, our own wants our own will. And, and I think that's why our Lord inspired the Apostle Paul to say the things that he did in Second Corinthians chapter twelve. And I'd like for you to turn over there. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. And and what this chapter is is where Paul shows us how it is that we also face this garden where we choose to become obedient or not. This is, you see it in the Lord Jesus Christ, and sometimes it's hard for us to to connect all of that to to our life. And so he, here's the life of somebody that's just like you and me. And what Paul finds himself in, though he doesn't call it this in, in this chapter, he finds himself in a garden between, in a struggle between my will and thy will, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the context here is, is Paul is, is explaining an experience that he had had at least 14 years previous to the writing of this, this letter. You see that in verse 2. And check this out. For 14 solid years, Paul had kept this experience that he had had uh, a secret from everybody. He never, ever breathed a word about this thing to anybody until he had to use this trump card here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And when he says at the end of verse 2 that what this experience was is that he was caught up to the third heaven. And most of you that were here when we were going through Revelation chapter 4 will remember that the third heaven is the abode of God. Paul is catapulted. To the very throne room of God, he explains in verse 4 how that he was, look at it, caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which, is, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. And what he's saying here is that, oh my goodness, through the things that I saw and the things that I heard, I mean, they were so absolutely incredible. I mean, it would be against the law for me to even tell you about what I saw. It'd be against the law for me to even tell you what I, what I heard. And for over 14 years, he's never breathed a word of it. In fact, this thing was so incredible that if you'll notice through the whole passage, as he talks about having this experience, he describes it in the third person. He describes it as if it happened to someone else. And you know why he does that? Because he didn't want to be held up as some big spiritual cheese because he had this experience. Look look at the middle of verse 6. He says, but now I forbear... Lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or or, or that he heareth of me. Paul understood and he recognized that there was going to be this major temptation because of this incredible experience that he had. There was going to be this temptation for everybody to hold him up and lift him up. Oh, you know, this guy, do you know what he heard? You know what he saw and all this kind of stuff. Paul recognized that, but listen, God recognized that potential even more so. And he knew... That even though Paul recognized the temptation, there was still going to be something that God was going to have to do to keep Paul's feet on the ground. And again, some of us are so lofty in the experiences that we've had in our knowledge of the Word of God. God's got to do some things to keep our feet on the ground. And look at what he says in, in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, so that that wouldn't happen, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. That's, what it, that's really what it means. That's what it is to buffet, to hit with the fist. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And let me just tell you, folks, if the Apostle Paul, I mean, if this guy, knowing everything that he knew, experiencing everything that he experienced, if this guy was in danger of being proud and self confident, let me assure you that it's going to be a major temptation for all of us. And like we were talking about earlier, it can very subtly creep into your life and you not even recognize it so so make sure that we're all listening as we move into this territory we all need to be very well aware that the sin of pride lurks around the heart of every single one of us and there ain't a single person in this room that is so spiritual that you're immune from that thing in fact check this out now and please listen carefully the more spiritual you get the closer to God you get the more surrendered to him you become the more this sin is gonna become a temptation in fact it's the only sin that the closer to God you get the more it becomes a temptation in fact it's more of a temptation for you than the people who aren't living a life that's surrendered to God You understand that And that's why Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, lest I should be exalted above measure. And yet, you know, you know what, what's in vogue in, 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 in right now? People come to this passage and they spend all kinds of time trying to figure out what the thorn was. What do you think the thorn was, brother? And I'm telling you, this is what knowledgeable people of the Word of God do. Forget the purpose. Let's, let's, let's talk for a moment about... What do you think the storm was? Well, in the book of Galatians, it talks about, you know, uh, you see how large a letter I write with my own hands. It must have been they had an eye problem. Uh, I was out in California in my younger days, and on Sunday afternoon, what I used to do, I used to have this little ritual. I'd go out in our little family room, the stereo was out there. I would lay down just to kind of chill my head, and one of the things I loved to do was listen to the, the, the black churches in Los Angeles. You know, they'd be uh, on every Sunday afternoon. And so I'm, I'm listening to, to this guy, and he's talking about Paul's thorn in the flush. The flush. I mean, I'm just, I'm just dying, you know. So he's working this thing. And now for centuries, and as he's doing this, you know, everybody, yeah, yeah. And you can hear him, man. I'm just, I'm loving. Oh, amen, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're all talking about. For centuries, people have debated as to what it was that was Paul's thorn in the flush. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some have surmised that it was, that he was a ugly, ugly fella. (laughs) And I'm out there by myself, I'm just having a big time. Others have said that it was his, the fact that he was short. Others have said that he had an eye problem and his eyes would run and it was just an ugly mess and all the time they're they're you know talking back and then he says and the others have said that it was that he had a bald head (laughs) and and you hear one of the guys in the audience say watch yourself And I told you that just because it was so tense in here. We need to loosen up just a little bit. I, I know that, you know, if you listen, this is, this is, you're understanding this is some hard stuff. But listen, understand the issue here. It ain't what is thawing in the flush was. It was the purpose for it. Listen, the purpose of it. God made it so clear. It was to keep him humble. As we're going to see here in just a second, verses 9 and 10, it was to bring him to a point of weakness. And now listen, and just in case, because I know how our attention span is, unless maybe some of you have forgotten how all, why we're here and how this all applies to us, listen, God works in every single one of our lives for the same exact purpose. He works in our lives to bring us to the place to where we will choose to humble ourselves and in our humility he gives us the opportunity of choosing whether or not we will obey him and become obedient unto death even the death of the cross or we will choose our will and do our thing and miss the life that comes through dying So understand, now that's why we're here. We're trying to learn some things about how God works in our life so that we can come to the place of choosing obedience to Him. And when God brought this thing into Paul's life, check this out, his first reaction was the same reaction that we would have, a very natural reaction. When God brings this this humbling and self-weakening situation into Paul's life, just like with us, he says in verse 8, For this thing, look at it, I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. You know what he does? He prays that it would be removed. And, and listen, that, that, that's not a bad thing. But oh my goodness, you've got to be so careful with this, this, this thing of the flesh because now for all of you folks who really have been trying to, to learn through everything that we've been talking about for the last several weeks and, and, and months, what's been going on is we've been coming before the Lord. And remember we talked about becoming doers of the word and so we've been coming before the, the, the Lord and we've been seeking to humble ourselves before him and oh my goodness the words are all very beautiful I, I would love to hear how you've been humbling yourself before God man the words are, are beautiful the words are right but for many of us and I, I, I say this I know this because I know it in me and I would just imagine that I probably represent a few people that would be like me. The words of my prayer are all about humbling myself and dying. That's the words that I'm saying. But while the words of my prayer are coming off my lips, the real unspoken prayer of my heart is, Lord. If it be possible, don't make this too hard. Lord, if it be possible, don't make this too painful. Can y'all just make me feel a little bit? How many of y'all feel like that's what's going on in your heart? Good. Thanks, God. I didn't want to be out there by myself. Lord, I want to be humble. I want it my way I I want to be humble without being humbled isn't it the truth I, I, I want to be humble Lord but oh listen would you please keep me from everything that would make me humble And here God brings this, this humbling thorn into Paul's life. And like us, he immediately begins to pray that God would remove it. He prays he'd be delivered out of it. He, he sp- very specifically tells us in verse 8, I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And again, it's not that that's necessarily wrong. You know know what? Sometimes God does allow things to come into our lives just for the purpose of of bringing us to Him so that we'll just come to Him in prayer. And, And it's not wrong when we're going through those things and we're afflicted to come and ask God to remove it. But please, always remember that the real purpose of prayer, this is so important now, the real purpose of prayer isn't to coax God into doing what we want or try to get Him to change His mind or to change His will. Listen, the real purpose of prayer is to change, say it, us, it's to change our wills, it's to change our minds, it's to change our wants and to conform our wants into His, so that He is glorified. Do you understand, folks, that's the real purpose of prayer? Not to bend God's arm on something, it's so to, to come and say, "God, I want you to be glorified." And now I'm bringing these things to you because I don't know exactly how you want to glorify yourself. That's what Jesus said in in, in John chapter 14, verse 13. He says, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that, here's the purpose, that I'll do whatever you pray, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the purpose of prayer, y'all, the glory of God. And, And now check this out. Just like Jesus did in the garden as he was becoming obedient unto death, Paul does the same exact thing thing here, and check this out. Just like with the Lord, he prays three times. I'm trying to get you to see. It's the same garden. It's between my will and thy will. He prays three specific times that if it would be possible that this cup or this thorn would pass or it would depart. And you may want to note here that when Paul prays, he perseveres in prayer until it's answered and you may also want to note that when God did answer the answer wasn't specifically what Paul asked for or even wanted because remember what he wanted is he wanted the thing to be removed but you see God knew that to receive the glory from this situation that he wanted to receive there was something far better for Paul and far more glorifying to himself then removing the thorn. And you know what it was? He, he gives Paul the, the blessed promise of receiving all the grace that he would ever need to bear this thorn every single second of every single minute of every single hour of every single day for the rest of his life. Now, I want to ask you, God's going to give you this choice. You got this thorn. This thing is, it's not just like this. You got this little problem. You've got a a major humiliating situation that's going on in your life. And you're praying about it. And God says, well, I'm going to give you a choice. I'll remove it. Or I'll give you the grace to bear this thing for the rest of your life. And what would you choose? Can we get honest again? Most of us would probably say, I think I'd rather remove it. Look at verse 9. Paul says, And he said unto me, Okay, now this this is after praying for the third time that it would depart from him. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, no, Paul, I'm not going to remove it. I've got something a whole lot better than that, Paul. What's that? Well, it's called grace. And and make sure you understand, folks, that God could have just as easily removed the stupid thing as he could give him the grace, right? I mean, it's not like, I really like to do this for you, Paul. Just don't have the ability... You know what? It'd be a whole lot easier just to remove the thing. I mean, now he's got to do this grace thing every second of every moment of every hour of every day of the rest of his life, you know? I mean, hey, be done with it, man. Just yank that thing. But you've got to see in removing it, God couldn't accomplish in Paul's life what Paul himself was wanting to do with his life. You know what Paul wanted to do with his life? He wanted to glorify God. You know what God wanted from Paul's life? He wanted him to glorify him. And God knew, if I remove this, it's not going to bring us to that conclusion. And so, God's answer to Paul in verse 9 isn't the subtraction of Paul's thorn. It's the addition of God's grace to his life to endure and bear the thorn and watch the reason God tells Paul that he's going to work like this for, okay, for, here's the reason that I'm going to give you the grace to deal with it rather than just removing it, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Listen, you know why Christians are so weak today? It's because we think we're so strong and as long as I think I've got the, as long as I think I've got the strength to do something, you know what? God's going to let me do it in the strength that I think that I've got. In the strength of the flesh. But when I'm brought to the place of weakness, when I'm brought to the place of absolute nothingness, where there is absolutely nothing that self is trusting in, do you understand what he's saying here? That's when his strength kicks in and perfectly or completely dominates the whole situation. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 10, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Not not in my power. Look look back at the end of verse 9. No, when we're brought to a place of nothingness or weakness, then, look at what he says at the end of verse 9, the power of Christ, it rests upon us. And his strength is then manifest through us. Turn back just real quick to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul was talking about back here. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. You'll understand it better now. Look at verse 8. He says, we're we're troubled on every side. Chapter 4, verse 8. We're troubled on every side. You see, that's what thorns will sometimes make you feel like. Paul says, yeah, I've got plenty I've got to deal with, man. There's, there's, there's trouble in every, every direction that I look. And yet he says, there's no reason to be distressed. And, and, and sometimes that, that, that thorn will call, come in the form of, of humanly, he calls them perplexing situations. But Paul says, we're, we're not in despair about it. Sometimes, verse 9, sometimes it comes in the form of persecution. But he says, we're not forsaken. Sometimes we are, we're cast down. I mean, we absolutely, we hit the canvas. We're knocked down, but we're not knocked out, he says. We're not destroyed. But you know what's happening through all of that trouble? You know what's happening through all of those perplexing situations? You know what's happening through all that persecution and all those things that are going on in life that cast us down? Verse 10, all those things are causing us to be constantly Bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. You know what this is? You know what those things are? They're a cross, they're a thorn. And we are through all of those things in our life. We are bearing in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's that weakness that Paul was talking about. That, here's why we go through all this, y'all that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And that's the strength that Paul was talking about in chapter 12. That's that power of Christ resting upon him and working through him that he was talking about. Do you see that? Do you... Tell me you care. (laughs) Now go back to chapter 12 and, and watch how Paul says... His attitude changed once he understood how God was working in his life through that thorn so that he could work through his life because of it. Watch the the change of attitude. Okay, now God responds to his prayer in verse 9 telling him, Paul. Listen, I ain't going to remove it, buddy, but I do want you to know I'm going to walk with you through this thing every step of the way. And listen, the weaker you allow yourself to become, the more of my strength I'll manifest through you. Now listen, if God told you right now that that's why you're going through everything in your life, the reason you're going through every single situation that is just driving you insane right now, it's because... He wants to bring you to a place of weakness so that his strength can be made manifest through you, so that his power can rest upon you and work through you. Would that change your attitude toward that? Oh, my goodness, watch how it changes Paul's. Look at the middle of verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Yeah, Paul says, you know, the caught up into the third heaven gig was really awesome, but you know what? I ain't going to glory in that. The power of Christ is manifest through me because of my infirmities. I've finally figured it out. The power of Christ is on me, not because I had some incredible experience where I was caught up into the third heaven. The power of Christ is on me because I'm going through all this trash. I'm going through all these infirmities so the power of Christ can be upon me. And check out verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Listen, you know what happened to Paul? Because of God's ministry in his life through the thorn. You know what he did? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The same thing that happened in the garden with the Lord Jesus Christ happened in the life of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And check this out, y'all. Through his obedience In this garden where he struggled between his will and the Father's will, he stopped resisting the thorn and started rejoicing in it. He stopped seeking to escape it and just trying to endure it. And he came to the place to where he actually enjoyed it. And whereas at one time this was the thing that perplexed him, this became... The very thing that he took pleasure in. I mean, can you imagine, folks? Listen now. Can you imagine taking pleasure in all the things that bring you to absolute humility and humiliation? You know, it's one thing for us to sit in here and read about it, you know, in the life of Paul when we're sitting here in the big room. But, buddy, it's something else when it's our life and we're out there and we are absolutely, through the things that are going on in our life, we're brought to a place of absolute humiliation and saying, Wow, I love this. Why? Because we're some screwball people that are sadistic? No. It's because we know why all this stuff happens. We're looking to the end of it rather than what's going on in the middle of it. We're saying... I know what's happening through this and so I ain't gonna get let it freak me out this is great man look at verse 10 again therefore I take pleasure in infirmities infirmities have to do with things that are physical physical ailments and sicknesses and diseases and handicaps and deformities you know what? You can go out of here tonight and, or this morning, have an accident and that real pretty face you've got could be changed for the rest of your life. Bring you to a place to where you're just an uh, unsightly thing. Pleasure? Man, this is great because what it does is it makes me weak, but that's not the cool part the fact that it makes me weak, he kicks in with his power, his strength. So man, I'll take this. And not just in infirmities, but in reproaches. Reproaches have to do with things that are mental. All the things that people say to us and about us to injure us. But Paul says, you know, it doesn't take, take me off anymore. In fact, I, I, I take pleasure in it. Next, he says in necessities, and this has to do with financial things. And, and, and listen, y'all, God's sh- showing you that, the, that he brings all these things into our lives for what purpose? To humble us, to make us weak. So when we respond in obedience, he can make us strong in his power. And Paul says, man, financial necessities, you know what? They're a great way that God uses to keep me humble. So I take pleasure in them. I'm not moaning and groaning to everybody about what we don't have. Man, I'm, I'm I'm just grinning because we're brought to a place of weakness to where we've got to look to Him. I take pleasure in that. Then he says, in persecutions, and this has to do with things that are social. And listen, by the time people chew you up because of the godly life that you live in the midst of this godless generation, and after they have spread all kind of rumors and lies and and make you look like a jerk you know what society isn't going to have a real high opinion of you and Paul says cool because man does that give god a great opportunity to make himself manifest in in all of his power then he says in verse 10 in distresses and that has to do with the emotional that's anything and everything else that goes on to try to get you nervous and worried and upset all that stuff. And so check this out. Paul says, all this stuff that goes on in my life, all of this stuff that humanly just just humiliates me, he says, you know what? It doesn't matter what arena it's from, whether it has to do with the physical, the mental, the financial, the social, or the emotional. You know what? I take pleasure in all of it because the weaker those things make me, the stronger Christ power can be made manifest through me. You say, goodness, man, how... How in the world do you get to this place? Man, I was, I was thinking there for a little while that, that maybe I was going to make it on this, this whole thing of experiencing the power of the resurrection. But man, if this is what it's going to take. <sighs> I'm just not so sure. I'm not about 50 years from being at this place, man. How could Paul have that kind of attitude? You know how? It's one word. And the word's found in verse 9 grace and Paul had learned some things about grace and I I want to I want you to see this because I I think you'll see this thing the way that that Paul did here if you learn what he learned about grace and I think if you will see what he saw maybe it might help change your attitude toward this thing second Corinthians chapter 9 just a page or two to your left there and I'm telling you, y'all, what God does here is he just, he just clears off a space and he just throws out this blockbuster of a verse that has to do with grace. And oh my goodness, it is, it, it, it'll, it'll rock your world if you let it. Paul tells us something here that he had learned about God's grace. And watch what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always have in all sufficiency and all things may abound to every good work. And you know what? The mistake we make so often, and I read the verse like that for a purpose because that's the way when we're reading our Bible at night to get through our three chapters so we can feel good about ourselves, that's sometimes the way we read verses like that and God is not able to take his word and do in us what he's wanting to do. Now, let's go back and let's work it for a second. Look at verse 8, and just look at the first two words for, for a second. And God. Okay, now now listen. It, It doesn't matter what kind of physical, mental, financial, social, or emotional circumstances you find yourself in out there. When you're facing a situation and the odds are stacked against you, you're facing a situation in life that has no human explanation, has no human solution, and you're just absolutely beside yourself, you know what you need to do? Just take every single thing that's going on in your life, make a list of it, and then just add those two words. Just add God to the equation, and I promise you, just by doing that, it'll change the situation beginning with your attitude. You know what? Our problem is we go through all this stuff that's going on in our life, and we feel like we've been forsaken. And so what we do is we never do what the first two words tell us to do. We never add God into the equation. Paul says, and God, look at it, and God what? Is Able. Now check this out. It's not that, that God might be able in some situations. It's not that God could be able if He jolly well pleases. It's not that God would like to be able in your situation. No, 100 times out of 100, He is able. A thousand times out of a thousand, He is able. He is, check it out, able. He has the ability to do whatever the situation calls for. And he has the ability to enable us to be able to face whatever it is that we're facing. Paul says, and God is able. Watch this now. Not just to provide you. He's able not just to provide you grace, but what? All grace. All the grace you need. All the grace the situation calls for. It's not going to lack one single thing, not for one single second, but check it out. The, The grace he'll give you won't just be all you need. He says that all grace will abound. In other words, there'll be grace in abundance. There'll be more than enough. There'll be more than you need. There'll be enough to spare. It'll abound. And he says, it's not just that God's ability could cause grace to abound he says he's able to what to make to make all grace abound and check it out not just abound toward the situation not just abound toward the circumstances but toward what i love this toward you god's interested in you this is all about his love and his grace toward you and here's the purpose Look at it. That ye, that you'll what? That you'll have sufficiency. Watch now. Not just sufficiency in some things. Not just sufficiency in a lot of things. Not just sufficiency in most things. But so that you'll have sufficiency in, say it, all things. And, and not just sufficiency in all things, but all Sufficiency in all things. And not just all sufficiency in all things, but so that you'll always have all sufficiency in all things. You know, I, I think that just maybe there might be a subtle message that God's trying to get through to us. And all of this is not just so you can do good works, but so that you can do, what does it say? Everything good work. And not just so you can do every good work, but so you can abound to every good work. Do you see what Paul's trying? You see what he learned about grace? Do you see why when God comes and he says, Paul, I ain't going to remove it. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you grace. He says, end of story. Okay, I'm fine with that because all I'm going to need is with all of these situations, man, God, when you step in and you bring your grace, I know this, I ain't just going to get by by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. I'm going to abound in this thing. And the power of Christ is going to rest upon me. And you know what? Some of you folks have got thorns that you're dealing with right now in your life. And and God wants to use those in your life to cause you to become obedient unto death. He wants to use those things to bring you to a point of total weakness and nothingness and death to self. And some of you are struggling with this whole thing because number one, you've forgotten why those things are in your life. You've forgotten that the reason that those things are going on is so that you could become weak, so that His strength could be made manifest through that body of yours, and so the power of Christ could rest upon you. That's why it's there. And others of you are struggling because, number two, you're resisting His grace. And would you look again at verse 8? God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Okay, now listen, folks. When the Egyptians are in pursuit of you, when your enemies are in pursuit of you and they brought you to a place where you're at a Red Sea and there's no way out and it looks like there's no way through, remember verse 8, God in that situation is able to make all grace abound toward me that I will always have all sufficiency even in this thing so that I can abound even through this to every good work and listen, when you've done the only thing that you've done is what is right and you refuse to eat the king's meat and and you've refused to bow to the gods of this world and, and, and persecution comes upon you because of it and the enemy commands that you're bound and cast into the midst of the fiery furnace Remember verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. And when the consequences of doing right take you from being in the midst of a fiery furnace and you're thrown into the the midst of a, a den of lions where they're just roaring and they're ferocious and hungry and you look around and there's no way up and there's no way under and there's no way out the sides... Verse 8, God is able. And you know you know why some of you are struggling with God's ability? You, you look at verse 8, God is able, and, and you're, look, you're sitting there this morning going, I want to believe this, but I'm really struggling with trusting His ability. You know why? You know why you're struggling? Listen, it's because right now you're in the middle of that Red Sea. It's because you're in the middle of that fiery furnace. It's because you're you're in in, in the middle of that lion's den. And, and let me just ask you now. Think with me. I know it's getting late. Listen, listen. We're almost done. How did God show His ability at the Red Sea, y'all? I mean, did He just beam them to the other side? No. He parted the waters and He brought them through the Red Sea. And how did God show his ability in that fiery furnace with those three Hebrew children? Did did he just yank them out of the thing? No, you know what the Bible says? He got into the fire. And he walked with them through it. And because he was walking with them through it. They didn't have a single hair on their body singed, and their body didn't, when they came out, didn't even have the smell of smoke. And how did God show his ability to Daniel in that lion's den? Did he just yank him out of there? Did he just remove the lions? No, you know what the Bible says? He sent the angel of the Lord into that den of lions. You know who the angel of the Lord is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Rather than yank him out of there, rather than take the lions out of there, Jesus got down into that den with Daniel all through the night and he closed the mouth of the lions. Do you get it? God said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, listen, I'm never going to allow there to be anything that is ever going to come into your life that is going to be more than I'm going to give you the ability to be able to handle that thing. And with that thing that comes into your life, I will make a way of escape so that you will be able to bear it but now listen the way out the way out of the Red Sea the way out of the fiery furnace the way out of the lion's den isn't removal the way of escape is through it and as you're going through it Jesus says I'll give you all the grace you need to handle it to the place to where you will, even in the midst of that thing, abound to every good work. But you've got to be obedient. And I'm telling you, every single day of our life, we walk into that garden between my will and thy will and we're making a choice about whether or not we're going to become obedient unto death and there will come painful situations that really hurt that really do humble you that really do humiliate you We're not there alone. And through the weakness that we feel at that moment, if we'll become obedient, you know what'll happen? Self will be crucified. Self will die. And once we've died, hang on, buddy, because you're getting ready to experience something. You know what it is? Bam! The power of the resurrection. The power of Christ rests upon you at that point, And it's no longer you who are doing all this for God. It's God has got you out of the way and he's doing it through you. And Paul says, oh my goodness, <laughs> Those, that experience of being caught up, it would it'd be, it'd be against the law for me to even tell you about what I saw and what I heard. But man, I don't even think about glory in that anymore glory in my infirmities because that's where the power is and you know what I told my wife this morning I'm going to finish that taking up your cross thing today but I'm just telling you I had a pit in my stomach this morning Because, and I told her, we could go the next year on this. I know that's hard to believe. We could go the next year on, on, on this stuff. And the thing I fear is you know, we're going to think we got all this because now we know it. The only thing that's happened to us at this point, y'all, is we've become more accountable. And now we face the choice of the garden of my will and and thy will. Get honest with God. Humble yourself before God. Be obedient to God unto death, even the death of the cross. And when you die on that cross and you're put into that grave, he doesn't keep you there. That's when you experience the power of his resurrection. Oh God, would you please help us not to to leave here today with our minds filled with more knowledge. Help us individually, help us as a church Help us to apply these these truths to to our life. Lord, I I pray that you would help all of us to be that honest before you, to humble ourselves in that way before you, and to be obedient all the way through cross-bearing and crucifixion, death and burial. And right there where you're seated for just a minute with with all of us with our heads bowed and just in a a moment of stillness before we leave. I I, I really think that through this message today, all of us have been left here this morning in a garden. And I think that if we're going to get into this garden and make the right choice, the choice of obedience tomorrow is probably going to begin because we make the right choice now. We've been brought this morning, any way you slice it, to a point of obedience. To where we will choose whether we will obey or or not obey. Whether we will choose our way or His way. Our will or His will. And why don't you just peel off a little space right now and say, Oh, Father, I want want to experience the crucifixion of the cross so that I may know the power of your resurrection. And I choose your way. I choose your will. And in your own words, why don't you just take a minute to tell him that.